So why would, a, um, why would a parent's trial strategy in a case where you're trying to show you're a good mother and meet a presumption based on your domestic violence be a, be a do-nothing trial strategy? In this case, uh, we believe the answer was uh, Ms. Bosquez perhaps didn't want to subject herself to a criminal prosecution or at least Counsel, believe that. I, I got to interrupt you there. She put in uh, the reports of the guardian ad litem which involve lots of professionals, lots of evidence from outside people in that. So I think that's a little bit of a mischaracterization about what was done here. Well, I think the, the trial strategy at a minimum would have been uh, that this evidence was not going to be favorable. To, to, to read the guardian ad litem report, which doesn't actually determine facts related to domestic violence, and then to rely on that going forward into trial we believe that that was a risky strategy based on the statute that requires her to meet that burden on domestic violence. And where does it in um, B-9 say that the abuser has a, as a burden of proof? I don't refer to it as a, as a burden of proof. That's a reference at the court. Burden of production, any kind of burden. Right. Uh, it indicates that there's a rebuttable presumption. And so we've got a couple, at least a couple of unpublished decisions that cite to Rule 301 in the Minnesota Rules of Evidence. There's another state that also does this, South Dakota, and the NEMIC decision. Um, so it's, it's not a, a burden of proof, but we, we already know that we have this presumption, right? And so the person that the, the, uh, the uh, presumption is directed against would have to come forward with, uh, quote, substantial countervailing evidence that's the Cath v Cath decision here in Minnesota so we didn't need to place a burden of proof there like we did with criminal convictions in the custody statute where a party was convicted of a domestic abuse uh, here it's merely the presumption and so we know what the sort of burden or but counsel isn't the presumption that that there has been domestic violence rather than person X has perpetrated domestic violence because those are two very different questions. Well, the, the presumption is directed against, and again, the unpublished decisions indicate that the uh, presumption is squarely directed against the perpetrator of the abuse. And so this is a presumption that they have to come forward with to rebut. And the cases are, are numerous that indicate how that but counsel, the, the main focus of a family court proceeding would be what is in the best interest of the child. And if we, if we agreed with you on that very narrow rule, it would disallow the district court to take into account all that that happens in family court proceedings, including um, what happens in the courtroom, how parties behave, listening to the testimony, credibility, um, because there's obviously um, many, many things that impact a court's decision as to who is in the best position to take care of a child. Right. And so we have to address why does the presumption then say that it's addressed to domestic violence alone? That's actually after the, we repealed part of that statute in 2015, or the legislature did, um, they took out that language about what parties were, were seeking and put in the language about what, what the presumption is directed at. And it's directed clearly and, and only at domestic violence. That's the comment that was made in Burnett v. Para that to rebut the presumption, we only, that's the word of the court, only consider domestic violence. So we don't get to the best interest factors yet, right? We've got 12 factors there. Domestic violence is actually one of them, but we gotta get past the presumption, right? Which will vanish. The presumption is, is that domestic violence occurred. And here the referee found that there had been domestic violence in this relationship. So moving past that, he used the rest of the factors to come up with his ultimate decision. Why is that wrong? Well, it's wrong because the presumption isn't directed at the existence of domestic violence. You actually have to produce uh, some evidence, some substantial countervailing evidence that this is not going to be some kind of lingering uh, or have any lingering uh, or future effect on the child's safety, well-being, and developmental harm is the way that the statute reads. And so we don't have any evidence, much less substantial countervailing evidence of that. And so we don't get to the best interest factors. I guess the alternative would be, well, we've got it down below here in subdivision 1B9, and we've got it up in the best interest factors. How do we handle that? You know, do we just square it mathematically? I think first we have to address the, the subdivision 1B9, that there's that presumption there. And we have plenty of cases that tell us how to do that. How do you successfully rebut the presumption? It was done 
in 2017, right, in AMW, uh, father testified that it was just the one incident of fear. I think he may have been convicted of misdemeanor assault fear. But he brought in his current wife, right, to say that there was no domestic abuse issues here. And I've addressed the alcohol, which is the underlying issue potentially that had caused that, that prior conviction. And so not a huge burden to have and to meet. And here one of the underlying issues was her mental health, correct? In AMW? No, in this instance, in this case. Correct. And there's, there was certainly findings in the record that she had managed that and it was in a much better position mentally than she had been previously. So isn't that akin to what you were just arguing? It would be akin to if we got into the best interest factors, but we don't think that we actually get into those uh, best interest factors. And I think ultimately the court decided that the mental health history of the parties was somehow uh, neutral if something was going to be ordered. Um, and so I think the court should have made a, a more clear statement about where that factor ended up in terms of which party it, it favored, and it did not do that. We believe that that's one of the errors that was made. But, uh, counsel, you agree that B-9 requires the court to consider the nature and the context of the domestic abuse. And that certainly occurred here. The, the, the referee had incredibly detailed findings about both the, the physical abuse that took place, although he didn't make specific findings on what occurred and what didn't. Um, but he, he, he found enough to show that the domestic abuse under the statute had been satisfied. But then he did exactly what he was told to do and look at the nature and context of it. And he looked at the troublesome behavior on, on behalf of your client in contributing to this toxic relationship and this really unhealthy pattern of interacting between these two people. So it seemed to me he did exactly what B-9 told him to do. I, I would respectfully disagree. Uh, the statute does say nature and context of domestic violence, um, but it also has an and following that, correct? So we don't look at that in isolation and say, well, let's see how we can best market this nature and context for a particular parent. It says that we look at the domestic violence's implications, and so it's forward-looking. In other words, what is the implication or effect or product of well, the counsel, domestic... it's really not that simple. I mean, first they'd have to, using, for example, I'm, have you heard of the safer approach that the Batter Women's Justice has put forth that I, is, comes up with the context and nature language? Have you heard of that before? No. Okay. Well, I mean, it's akin to, is there domestic violence? What's the context? What's the nature? And then what's the implication? Which, to me, is exactly what this referee did. So I'm not quite following your argument. Well, when I look at nature and context, I, my, I would question if I, you know, in, in that situation, uh, if I was in charge of, of the court, which I certainly was not, is there a pattern of domestic violence, right? Was the domestic violence particularly serious? For example, in AMW, maybe it wasn't that serious. Um, was the child present? Things of that nature. But past excuses for why the domestic violence allegedly occurred, or even if we believe that those excuses are why it occurred, fall flat under the statute because, again, the word is implications of the nature and context of what, the domestic what's abuse. The outcome, what's, the outcome you, what's the outcome that should occur here, then, if, there's, if, the, if the presumption was not rebutted? It's just a, a, a reversal of the trial court's order. There's really no... No, what do you want for your client? What, what do you want the trial court to do? Well, if this court were to reverse the trial court, then I suppose uh, appellant would then have uh, full uh, legal and uh, physical custody of so, the child, subject to parenting time. So your argument is that under the statute, if the presumption is not rebutted, your client gets sole custody, joint and legal custody, or gets sole legal and physical custody? That's correct, Your Honor. And, that, that and where does the statute say that's the outcome? Where does well, it say that your client gets that? It just says that there's no joint custody. Correct. Well, first, first I would indicate that several of the court, court would have to decide, right, whether it would be remanded or reversed and that kind of thing. There's several examples of, of, of case law where, there was, where a party didn't meet the presumption and there was no remand. It was simply reversed to grant custody for the other. I'm asking what the trial court's going to do here. So they get it back and the choice is not the choice in the statute, as I read it, is you just can't give joint custody. But it doesn't say who gets custody, right? Well, if we truly thought the legislature was, was vague, Your Honor, 
Um, well, they didn't. Do you, do, you they think didn't the say, do you think the legislature was vague? I don't, uh, because of the however language that I cite in, in our brief, and we argue that. Um, but this has actually been addressed in another state. Uh, we talked about uh, District of Columbia and Iowa having similar statutes, right? And in the District of Columbia, so again, if, we, if, we, if here we thought the legislature was, was vague, they, well, they didn't say anything about a domestic abuser parent getting sole custody. That was addressed in PF versus NC, as cited in our brief. The court went on to say the legislature, quote, did not explicitly identify the legal consequences that would follow if the presumption in favor of joint custody is rendered inapplicable because inter alia, one of the parents has committed an intra-family offense, it would be patently illogical, however, to suppose that the council intended in such circumstances that spouse abuse would be a neutral factor and that both parents should be presumed equally suitable candidates for sole custody. We will construe the statute to avoid absurd and plainly unjust results. And that's precisely the error that the trial court made in this case. But so, if- So is your argument uh, that a finding of domestic abuse then ultimately requires uh, that parent is not entitled to either joint custody or sole physical, either joint custody or sole custody? That's correct. I mean, I think that's the way that that, that sentence reads in the statute. Yeah, and the problem I have with that is it doesn't actually say that. What do we do with that? Well, if we're, again, avoiding the unjust... There are jurisdictions that have, have... Other jurisdictions have reached other conclusions, but I'm just looking at the plain language of the statute. How do you get to the point that you just told me you were at from the language of the statute? We, I, think it, I think it's a combination, clearly, of the language of the statute, um, the interpretation of absurdity as in PF and the rule of evidence that we have here and that was also applied in South Dakota and Nemec. So if we take these three things, really that's the, the result that we would need to have is that if yes, the parent- case law council where we have applied the rule of evidence 301 to this scenario? Uh, we have, Your Honor, in some unpublished decisions. Uh, AJ, AJO is, is one, Your Honor. Uh, a fifteen Are there any published decisions? I, I don't believe so. Not in not in Minnesota that I'm aware of, Your Honor. Say, Council, I'm interested in your um, argument regarding the word "however" in the statute in B uh, nine, and uh, the, the second sentence starts with the word "however." What precisely is your argument about what what "however" signifies? However, signifies that uh, at that point it's an alternative intention. Legislature had an alternative intention from what it had said in the first sentence, right? And that was the purpose of so our is citation. It, is it a limitation then on the first sentence? It's a limitation. It's an alternative intention. Another uh, synonym for however can be in all events, right? So in all events where we have domestic violence, this is what we do. So the first sentence is keyed upon the request of either or both parties for joint custody, Right. Right. Okay, in this case, uh, your client did not request joint custody, correct? Correct. Um, did uh, the spouse request joint custody? I believe, I, uh, not joint, there was a reference that, she, that they wanted to follow what the guardian ad litem recommendation was as far as, I think, physical custody. As far as legal custody, I think she was demanding sole uh, legal custody, so, so correct. So if sentence one is keyed upon the request of both parties, in this case, we don't have a request by either party for joint legal custody, right? Right. And then sentence two would be a limitation on sentence one. Wouldn't sentence two assume that there's a request by either or both parties for joint legal custody? No. Why not? Because we have uh, domestic violence and the word however. So there's an alternative intention there through the use of the word however. This is the argument that I, I don't understand. I, it came to, obviously, family well, law if practice. Well, if neither party is requesting joint legal custody, then how, by your own, your own analysis, do you apply the presumption against it? Well, I guess this is the argument, again, that I, I'm not sure I'm following, that, that somehow the first sentence modifies this, only half of the second sentence. 
because that only, the first sentence only applies to legal, right? Second sentence indicates there's a presumption against both joint legal and joint physical custody. Right, which is tied in by um, uh, subparagraph 7 uh, just above. That's how physical. But I'm just focusing on legal right. custody for the moment. If the first sentence says the rebuttable presumption applies when there's a request by either or both parties, and there hasn't been one in this case, then how can the second sentence, how can the rebuttable presumption even come into effect in the second sentence if there hasn't been a requ request? Because again, we have the word however, so the second sentence applies in cases of domestic violence. The first sentence is completely moot based on our arguments and our citation to the Missouri case that, that goes into the discussion about what however is. So it's an alternative intention that your requests don't matter. And in fact, that's part of what we repealed, right? The legislature repealed the statute in 2015 where the subdivision- yeah, but now you're getting into legislative history. I'm just right. focusing on the words of the statute. Is it your contention, by the way, that the second sentence of sub nine is ambiguous? No, it's not ambiguous. Okay, so then legislative history doesn't have anything to do with it. No, but if we, we got there, I've got some interesting maybe uh, uh, citations from the statute that would help us declare how it should be construed. And so we would look to Minnesota statute 645.16. It talks about the occasion and necessity of the law. So if we thought there was some construction that needed to take place here, we would look at the occasion and necessity of the law. Right, we talked about the uh, concurrent resolution of Congress in 1990, right? Second factor in the statute is circumstances under which it was enacted. Again, the, the concurrent resolution from Congress in 1990. The mischief to be remedied, wouldn't that be domestic violence? I think we're telling parents here that if you've committed domestic violence, get help. That's how we would remedy it with a statute like this, right? That directs the, a presumption to be rebutted by the perpetrator of the abuse. The object to be attained is the fourth factor in 645.16. What's the object to be attained by the statute here? It's to remove children from the environment of domestic abuse. That's what the cases tell us. That's what Congress told us, right? The consequences of a particular interpretation, if we do look at the relative custodial greed of the parents, didn't the Minnesota State Bar Association argue that there would be a risk? And I think that was what was meant to be said there, that there would be a risk to children by placing the requests of the parents over that of the safety and well-being and developmental uh, capacity for the child. So there's a number of, of cases that we've seen. Council, um, can I just ask you, why don't the reports from the Guardian rebut the presumption your Honor, the, the guardian ad litem, um, I mean, it has an obligation under the statute 518.165 subdivision 2A to determine facts. And the only thing I see in the guardian ad litem report is that these allegations are going this way, going that way. I don't think any, really any uh, facts were determined by the guardian ad litem. So in that sense, it was difficult to make the conclusions that the guardian ad litem was required to make also by statute. Right, and so if you're gonna make the best interests analysis of the 12 factors, we can't simply ignore whether the facts of the case involve domestic violence and we can't escape our obligation to make conclusions about domestic violence. And I believe that's what happened. If we read the Guardian Lightham report, it talks about allegations. That's not sufficient enough and that's not enough evidence. That's not substantial countervailing evidence that would rebut the presumption that's directed squarely at domestic violence. Council, when I read um, your brief, it seemed to me, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it, the first 35 pages seems to really go towards um, disagreement with the district court findings based on testimony and evidence proffered. And it wasn't until page 35, 36, I think, where you started to to argue the law rather than the facts. And, and, and it seems to me that's what I'm hearing from you today is that I think there's, you're, you're clearly you have a disagreement with the referee's findings based on the record. But I'm not hearing that tied into a, the statute or a case. I'm, those two are disconnects for me. Okay, 
Well, I think what the, um, the trial court did, I think we have a misapplication of the law in 1B9, right, the presumption. The trial court said, no, that's not how we interpret that. That, this, that's not, that doesn't favor any particular party, right? But we have PFVNC that addressed this squarely in the District of Columbia and said, no, that's absurd. Clearly, this favors the, the par party who did not commit domestic violence, right? So that's one of the errors that this court can handle sort of de novo. Another error was the trial courts, if we get to the 12 best interest factors, was this emphasis on 1A11, the disposition of, of appellant not to want to support the relationship between respondent, uh, his domestic abuser, and their child. So there's a couple error, legal errors there that I think basically carry the day here. When we have a complete lack of evidence under Rule 301, substantial countervailing evidence, under the cases that we see that that analyze the rebuttable presumption, I think that's, uh, that's grounds for reversal without regard to, certainly we have some issues about, it looks like the trial court is sort of, to some degree making some conclusions about control and, and things of that nature. We're really more in the province of an expert witness almost, but um, at the end of the day, I if, think that's an unfair statement because if I look at the district court's findings, there were uh, direct facts that were tied into the court's conclusion that there was manipulation and power dynamics that were very concerning to the court. And it, it, the findings had specific um, references to behavior. So I, I think that's an unfair statement for the, to the district court. In, in my review of the record, Your Honor, um, I, I don't see a lot of evidence to support those kind of very serious statements about emotional abuse and things of that nature. I think there was a statement from a respondent that he insulted me on a daily uh, basis or something. Um, but we really have to question, you know, what can we really take from that if, in fact, respondent's Con case... Counsel, I just have to disagree with you because if you look at page 8 of the referee's order... He says that uh, your client acknowledged calling uh, Ms. Vasquez extremely vulgar and degrading names and insults. The referee found that verbal abuse was a constant and daily occurrence. The referee found that the relationship was impossible because of the, your client's observable contempt and res resentment toward Vasquez. He found that your client had the vast majority of power over Vasquez because of education fashion and so forth. There's lots of factual findings here that come from evidence that the parties presented. And I, I just don't, I don't agree with, with that uh, assessment. I do agree that that's what the trial court said, but it's more findings than it is actually substantive evidence. If we look through the record, um, you know, Ms. Vasquez said, we, we've got emails, we've got text messages, we've got witnesses to call about fitness to parent and so forth. And none of this was produced. None of it. So we have to rely on her sort of off-the-cuff statement at the OFP that, that Mr. Uh, Thornton insulted her. Um, and that, that, I guess that that was a daily occurrence. Well, then why didn't the domestic violence occur every day? That's what the statute is directed at. Why did the domestic abuse occur, and did she rebut the presumption? It doesn't look at how the parents treat each other. At some point, maybe we will have a presumption in the statute based on on that factor, how parents treat each other. But we have to look at the long-lasting effects of domestic violence and the social science behind that and behind the fact that the presumption is directed squarely at the domestic abuser. And I will talk about the, uh, you know, something about the, the, uh, the daycare provider, the babysitter. Um, you know, this goes to our citation to Ford v. Ford and that sometimes we don't really look. Was some of the things that Mr. Thornton did, were they actually justified? Um, you know, his choice to, to yank the child out of daycare, that's not actually what happened. Mr. Thornton was subjected to cross-examination regarding this. Uh, Respondent got nowhere. Isn't that getting into the facts of the case, which we would, we would review for abuse of discretion rather than, we would not be making a decision as to whether that happened or didn't happen, or the basis for why he removed the child from daycare. The district court did that. That would be a review of, by abuse of discretion, right? I believe, um, well, if we look at Ford v. Ford, which is sort of the dictating case here, we have to look at the sort of overall balancing that was done by the, the, the trial court. And if the trial court didn't give these things fair consideration, then I think we, we can be convinced that the, court, the trial court 
you know, erred in its ultimate conclusion. So is that your argument here, that this is abuse of discretion? Well, again, there's de novo errors here by the trial court. Well, so Ms. I guess my, the thing that I'm still not clear on, if the presumption is not overcome, what does the trial court look to? Do they look back to the 12 factors to decide who gets sole custody? No. The, may I answer? I, my time's expired. There are unpublished decisions that say... But not of this court. They don't... They don't no. But okay. they don't go to the 12 best interest factors. And all around the country, we go to the domestic... Our statute's very clear. There's a number of state statutes that talk about how, you know, the language, you know, exactly the... There's not any in particular state that have one just like so you, ours so that just, focuses just on domestic violence. So just so I'm clear, your, your position is that if the presumption is not overcome, the, your client gets both sole, gets sole custody, both physical and legal. Until That's, there's a, a motion indicating otherwise another just result under the, the law of domestic violence. So that, okay, but that's what your position is. Correct. Okay. Thank you, counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Lawhead. May it please the court, my name is Mary Lawhead, and I appear with trial counsel Robert Blotton on behalf of respondent Jessica Ortiz Busquez. I believe that one of the most instructive pieces of appellate assistance in this case comes from the briefs that were obtained upon solicitation of this court from Amici. The Minnesota State Bar Association amicus outlines the evolution of the statute in reaching its ultimate conclusion that the rebuttable presumption set out in 518 subdivision 1b9 does not operate against a parent but is there to force careful consideration by a trial court of the history and implications of domestic abuse. And it isn't about what a parent wants because it goes on and says, as it relates to parenting and for purposes of a child's safety, well-being, and development. Those are really tying right back into the statutory mandate of 518.17 subdivision 1B, where all of the factors are to be considered, not in isolation, not by keeping score, as this court pointed out in the NAK decision. It's not keeping score, a reference that Referee Street included in his, in his order. But to very carefully analyze and delineate how the evidence before the court ties back into the best interests of a child, not a parent's inclinations, not a parent's demands or desires, but what is best for a child. Counsel has tie. argued... What if it's a tie? Oh, I'm sorry? What if it's a tie? First of all, then you have to start assigning weight to the factors. Because you don't say A1 has this and B goes this way. You start assigning weight. And let's give an example right out of this trial court order of May 2018. I'm not looking at the issue about a child's stated preference. Why? It doesn't apply here. I am not looking at various factors. In fact, the trial court said specifically, I am not going to consider the friendly parent factor because domestic abuse in this case occurred. That's in a footnote and it's again repeated throughout the briefs, not only for the respondent, but in the Amici. So do you, you weigh have, it. Do you disagree with the rule of law put, put forward by the Battered Women's Justice Project in their amicus brief? 
I think that the Justice Women's Project, as well as the standpoint they came together as a consolidation, overlooked the fact that they had specifically asked our legislature to look at it and apply it against the abuser. And that's why I think the Minnesota State Bar amicus brief so carefully highlights that that was argued to our legislature. It was endorsed by those coalitions on behalf of domestic abuse. I believe the legislature rejected it, Your Honor, in an effort to keep the statute gender neutral because the reality on percentages of domestic violence is that most violence is perpetrated against women. And when you start taking dads out of the equation, you downplay the importance of the dad. You downplay what that parent has to offer. So by keeping the statute neutral, and as Justice Chudik points out, applying it for purposes of an analysis of domestic violence, the history, its implications, and characterizations, you keep the statute gender neutral precisely so that a parent based on gender is not excluded. In fact, given the fact that those organizations actively lobbied, actively requested that it be applied against a domestically abusive parent. And our legislature said, uh-uh, no we won't. That it highlights how the argument on behalf of respondent as well as from the amicus MSBA, it isn't about knocking a parent out of the game. It is allowing both parents to move forward in presenting evidence. I believe that the skepticism expressed by the questioning against appellant's counsel about how there was evidence in the record that was advanced on behalf of respondent to rebut the statute. Counsel, there's, I want to step back in the big picture of this case. One piece that troubles me about this is uh, the court's ultimate conclusion not to award joint legal custody. And I'm wondering, having reached the conclusion that it did relative to joint physical custody, um, whether the evidence actually supports that conclusion. I'm wondering if you could take a minute to address that. Thank you, Your Honor. Justice Anderson, I think that this comes down to a very simple fact, that fathers demonstrated actions to exclude the mother would literally turn a joint legal custody award into the case where the child is the gavel pounding the podium. The just, the, this court dealt in Hansen v. Todnan with an issue about whether father should have the right to demand the care of the child rather than mother's maintaining child care arrangements that she chose. Justice McKeague wrote that opinion and you dissented joined by Justice Hudson. And you went into the issue as to the parent's right to make determinations. When you have one parent who will not participate and allow the other parent to make determinations, more to the point, friendly parent was tossed out of the court's order, totally. Why? Because of the concern that with domestic abuse, just as this court outlined the issues that the Domestic Abuse Act has a remedial purpose the remedial purpose, as outlined in the very careful analysis on both sides in Schmidt v. Kuhn's, looked at who was being protected. The victim was. So if you impose upon a victim the requirement that there be co-parenting and cooperation and communication, 
you could be making it very hard for the victim parent to do so. I put in my brief that this is one case where the award of sole legal custody at least determined a decision maker, not a fight, as Hadson v. Tadman had. Counsel, oh. didn't the referee support those findings by um, raising and, well, by making findings related to control issues, manipulation, the imbalance of the power, and that was related directly to the court's decision about the joint legal custody and why that was not in this child's best interest. That's right, Your Honor. Pages 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Referee Street's order goes into very specific examples, some of which Justice Trudick alluded to in her questioning of appellant's counsel. Let me go one step further. When he talked about coercive control in his footnote, when he talked about emotional abuse, that was thoroughly trashed out at the domestic abuse two hearings. The domestic abuse and the custody cases, two separate proceedings, they interlap by references back to domestic abuse. What is interesting and critical for this court to understand is that appellant himself put into evidence the evidence that respondent could rely upon to rebut that presumption. He put in the transcripts. The court clearly referenced those transcripts, including its admonition to the respondent that you don't manipulate by threatening suicide. That was even included in this court's findings. You don't manipulate by using the threats of suicide to obtain an outcome. Again, clearly referenced in the court's findings. But you've got to look at, and I put the power wheel in for a reason, going back to, I think, 78, where the Duluth Project analyzed it. And we go into trainings today to make sure we are sensitized and recognize domestic abuse. Coercive control is not a joke. Dysfunctional relationships occur. They can be accompanied by violence. Um, Gabriel Davis's articles are cited in the amicus briefs that have been submitted to this court. You don't need to beat someone up in order to attack them. And this is going into, and I, I'm sorry, just the Supreme Court, a crying fire in a crowded theater. There is a result, there is an impact, whether you call it retaliatory violence, whether you call it um, protective or inappropriate or toxic. I put in footnote one of the respondent's brief the language that was testified to by the respondent in the domestic abuse trial. She was called a whore. She was called his prostitute. And in the interests of gentility, I will say you'd never call a partner, male or female, no matter how the pairs come together, a receptacle for waste products of seminal or other bodily fluids. It's something that you sit there, and she talked about that in the domestic abuse trials. She talked about how he says, oh, don't do this in the presence of the child. You shouldn't swear. But, oh well, I can call you names. A female child exposed to the language and the characterizations by the other parent about the mother of this child, a child who is going to have to have its identity formulated in the context of both parents showing strengths. Ms. Bosquez unequivocally stated he was a good dad. She did not say he was awful. She was concerned his efforts to control her could then be translated to efforts to control a child. That was Counsel, clear. Back on the legal issue that's before us on the presumption, um, 
I'd like to ask you the same question the Chief Justice asked opposing counsel. Did the GAL report rebut the presumption? I do believe it did, Your Honor. And how do you respond to opposing counsel's argument that the GAL report did not contain the facts that, that contemplated by um, a GAL's responsibilities? I think that, first of all, the GAL, GAL was a neutral fact finder. The GAL was the impetus for getting these parties to Dr. Beth Harrington, who is a very respected psychologist in doing a parenting assessment. The reports of Beth Harrington did not come in at trial. There was this colloquy between the attorneys about, well, I'll agree to it, well, I'll have to think about it, well, your time is running, you'd either take it or leave it, and it never came in. The GAL excerpted Beth Harrington's findings as well as the findings of Judith Hill, who had made the chemical assessments of the parties. Okay. And I'd like to ask you about the relationship between the first sentence of B9 and the second sentence. Um, is, I, is the second sentence simply a limitation on the first sentence, or is it independently triggered by any case in which joint custody is a possibility? I think that the first sentence talks about when a party seeks joint legal or physical right, custody. Right, the trigger is a request That's for the first, the first sentence. sentence. And then you go to however. I do not read it as an and. I read it as a but. And counsel in the reply brief led off with that on the first page and went off into statutory construction. This court looked at statutory construction in the Hansen v. Todman case, and I'm blanking, but you don't read into the statute the meaning you want to have imparted to it. Yeah, but I'm trying to find out what you, how, what you read into the statute. Is the second sentence something that's a standalone, or does the word however or but mean that it's connected to the first sentence? In other words, does there need to be a request for joint custody before the second sentence is triggered? I think that to the extent that subdivision 1B goes on to talk about the history and implications of domestic violence, that whether you argue about whether however means and or but doesn't really come into play for the simple reason that a court is told you have to look at it and you have to analyze it. And then it ties back to Subdivision 1B, which says you have to look at all of the factors, and then you have the friendly parent analysis in 11. So you read it that the court should apply the presumption regardless of whether either or both parties have requested joint custody. I read it as the court has to look at the presumption in the context of cases with a history of domestic violence. Irrespective of the party's requests? Irrespective okay, of the party's you. requests, yes. Sorry. Went around in a circle getting to that point. And just so I can clarify, the State Bar Association took um, that's a little different view. Is that right? Or, or was that consistent with your view? If you look at this. I think they took the view that if, if one side, if each side requests sole custody, which I would think would happen mostly in cases of domestic abuse. I would think it would be a rare case where there's been domestic abuse and one or the other side would request joint custody. I respectfully disagree with okay. you, Your Honor, and I think that attorneys involved in family law practice will often say to a client who may well be the victim that the court wants us to cooperate in raising a child. The court sees the value of that. Um, you see domestic abuse cases seeking exclusion, and then you see the divorce following or a paternity case following shortly thereafter, where the demand is made for joint legal and joint physical custody in these days, requesting a 5225 schedule exactly which went into place here. Let me ask you this. In terms of your position that the court should always 
um, consider this rebuttable presumption that joint custody is not in the best interest of the child when domestic abuse has occurred. Um, they, they were, everybody, I think, agrees that the, the best interest of the child is key in all of these proceedings. And it, it seems to make most sense to me that you would, uh, especially given B1, that you would run through those, all those relevant um, joint interest factors of A, 1A, in every case, even where domestic abuse has occurred. Your Honor, if I remember correctly, and I will apologize if I'm wrong, though I don't think I am, the amicus in the, um, the MSBA amicus looked at the issue of it being a rebuttable presumption statute to maintain the focus on the child and that it isn't about the parent. It isn't that the domestically abused parent is struck out before even swinging the bat, if that makes some sense. It is that the history and implications come into play. So, so what if the presumption isn't overcome? What does the court do then? Do they go back to the best interest to do the same? And assuming here the presumption wasn't overcome, would the court just go and do the exact same analysis that it did and come up with the same conclusion as to legal custody? Because they found sole legal custody. They found sole legal custody in order to ensure that the no. mother's relationship with the child was not marginalized or sabotaged no, I understand or that. eliminated. And what I'm asking you is assume that, they, that the, the assumption is that the presumption of that the presumption is sole legal custody so that this you know the the presumption we're talking about says that there's a rebuttable the court shall use a rebuttable presumption that joint legal custody is not in the best interest of the child if there's domestic abuse okay That's right. so they they make that presumption so they're they're presuming joint legal custody is not in the best interest so then it is sole legal custody who, how do you determine which one gets sole legal custody? Do you go back to the best interest of the you child have factors? You go back to the, the same best exact interest. analysis that the court did That's in this correct. case. That's correct. And I think it's instructive that in So this in some sense, for you to win, we don't have to decide how, how the presumption works. We would just have to decide whether the trial court abused its discretion in making this determination that legal custody belongs with the mom instead of the dad. Your Honor, I pray you don't do that. This case requires clarification as to the fact that the rebuttable presumption arises in cases with a history of domestic violence. I do not think it would be fair to say, oh gee, well, we're going to look at this and say, never mind. Well, I, I'm just saying the outcome's the same for your client either way. Yes, I believe it would be, Your Honor. But the statute already says that. I mean, the statute already says there's a rebuttable presumption. So what value are we adding if we just repeat what the statute already says? Well, you know, Your Honor, in the MSB amicus, the point is made that we do assign presumptions in family law. In juvenile law, the presumption is applied against the parent as to what to prove or against the county in terms of what they have to do. And I'm not going to pretend an extensive knowledge of juvenile law. The amicus pointed out that in Hafley, neither party bears the presumption on an affirmative burden of proof as to evaluation in the division of marital assets. That's kind of saying, Come in, you both take your best shot. In the 518.54, um, the party who asserts a non-marital claim has to trace it, document it, and prove it. Burden of proof is on that person. In this court's recent Kramer case, you looked at how and who bore the presumption to prove how the anti-nuptial contract was supposed to be applied. So, so if we don't reach the presumption here, though, you'd have to go back to trial court anyway because you'd have to determine, because then it, the presumption is that, that, that the uh, physical custody needs to be, isn't joint as well, right? 
Actually, Your Honor, the court very carefully quantified that. It found that the joint legal presumption of custody, legal joint, had been not rebutted. And then the court went on to find that the joint physical custody was rebutted. And again, looking back at the domestic abuse um, statute, as well as the fact that there was a documented chosen victim here, exchanges were to be very carefully set out. Yeah, I think my question was, okay. I, I'm wrong, sorry. <laughs> With all due respect, Your Honor, I wasn't calling you out. Anyway, um, I think that, you know, it's really important for this court to remember that one of the things that led to the complete overhaul of 518.17 was the task force that looked at trying to redefine best interests. The other thing that I think is really important that this court look at is the friendly parent doctrine is not imposed upon a victim of domestic abuse. Referee Street said exactly that. I'm not going to do this. The argument kept coming back that somehow this was bias against his refusal to cooperate. And I put into the respondent's brief where his attorney told the court he would do that in the September 27 review hearing where he told the court in his testimony that he would do that. The court could have taken him at his word. The court followed the statute and did not. We could quote Thiel v. Stitch, which is the old grandfather case that says, you don't argue it below, don't bring it up here, or if that's your position below, we'll hold it to you in the appellate context. Your red light's on, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Cheater, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. So counsel for respondent argues um, that this presumption is not designed to be sort of a knockout punch, you know, to knock you out of the game. But you got to get in the game. I think you have to acknowledge that you committed domestic violence. I think you have to have it treated. I think that's what the presumption is for. This isn't a knockout punch. That's not what we're arguing. Can you imagine if there was a legal presumption based on alcoholism, uh, which also affects kids, right? What if the legislature had passed something like that and, and the position was, no, I never touched the stuff. I had five DWIs, but I never touched it. I never touched the alcohol. And if I did drink, it was because of the way others treated me. This is not a difficult or harsh, it's not a harsh statute we have in Minnesota. North Dakota is a, is a great example. The presumption may be overcome only by clear and convincing evidence that the best interests of the child require that the parent have residential responsibility. That's been interpreted to mean that the other parent has to be unfit to parent. Is that harsh? What did Dr. Harrington say about Mr. Thornton? He's likely to provide a stable and consistent home environment for the child. This is not a harsh statute, but you've got to address the presumption. Alaska is very similar. No right to any type of custody absent meeting the presumption. The legislature took out subdivision two in 2015. The subdivision two said the label was factors when joint custody is sought. Why did we take that out? Because it no longer matters. And we now have clarity as to what the presumption is and what the use of the word however is. Before it might have been a little bit ambiguous, right? I don't think it was because the however was down in a paragraph. It wasn't up in the factors that we consider when the parties were making a request. Counsel, I'd like to ask you about B9, this time the third sentence. This is the one where it says that the court considers the nature and context of the domestic abuse and the implications for the um, child's safety and so on. 
what is our scope of review on district court findings on, on those, um, those matters in the third sentence of B9? Well, because our argument is about the implications of domestic abuse, right? That is prospective. What is, what could the domestic abuse, what are the implications of domestic sure, and abuse? Sure, what, what's our scope of review on that? Uh, well, the scope of review, I suppose, would be, would be to review the, the record. And I think that's a de novo type of issue because the court is saying, nope, let's go backwards. And if we can scapegoat somebody for the domestic violence, that's good enough. I say no. We need to look forward. We don't give any deference to the district court on that, the third sentence of B9? No, because it's a misapplication of law. We need to look forward. The child's future, right? Not back in time to determine if it can be scapegoated out of the statute. Counsel, we had, we had some discussion uh, with uh, opposing counsel about the MSBA's um, amicus brief here. I think it might be useful to the court to have your view on, on the position taken by the MSBA here. The position meaning that... Um, yeah, I presume you disagree with their analysis, and I'm just wondering if you could summarize quickly why you would disagree. Well, I disagree. I mean, in looking at the, the statute, my interpretation, the ABA's interpretation in the chart, right, they went over all these statutes, and in every one they said, this applies against the perpetrator of domestic abuse, shall not have custody unless they meet the presumption, right? And so we have a very, like I said, we have a very clear statute here. I, I don't believe the, the, the sort of requests from the parties are relevant under the statute. This term, however, it means that the first sentence is, is, is rendered moot, essentially, at least in cases of domestic violence, right? That's the only logical interpretation of that, pursuant to the District of Columbia having addressed the same issue, right? Um, Counsel, so let me ask you about the fourth sentence in B9 that references paragraph A, clause 12, and um, which is about the ability of the parents to cooperate. Yeah. Um, doesn't that seem to presume that those best interest factors are going to be examined since B9 itself refers to one of those best interest factors, regardless right. of whether you get in the right. game or not? Right. Subdivision 1B9, right, says governs the application of subdivision 1A, right? And a synonym of govern is right to regulate. So it does regulate the application of the best factors, but it's sometimes we're not, we're not going to have an application of that. Um, but yes, I agree that the uh, that last sentence there is, is sort of a strange placement. Um, but if we focus on the word presumption, apply Minnesota rule of evidence 301, um, that sense would, would come into play. But it would mean that the presumption vanished, and then we take that into account in our application of the 12 best interest factors. That's how I would look at it. But I would have placed that, that sentence probably elsewhere. Um, so in, in conclusion, you know, we're going to have regular people, I assume, coming into family court, many without attorneys. It'd be an important lesson from this case, right? What is the, you know, what's the lesson here? Um, you know, I can envision some of the conversations maybe in attorneys' offices, right? Um, you know, should we address the domestic violence, right? Or should we, should we take some other road, right? We don't need to make this that difficult, right? It's a presumption-based for the safety of children and against the perpetrator of abuse. These are, not a, these are not compelling arguments if we look at the words of the statute and the fact that the presumption... Counsel, I just have to say, I think you want, you're trying to really simplify what is an extremely complex issue, which is domestic violence, which is why it is important that you look at it through multiple views because I think the referee accounted for your client's conduct um, and found that to be of such a nature that he awarded the sole legal custody to Ms. Bas, Bas Vasquez, who um, had agreed to an order for protection, which was domestic violence. But I feel like you're really trying to make it much simpler than it is, because it is an extremely complex issue um, that that cannot be so simply determined. I, I understand that, Your Honor, and I appreciate that. Um, I just feel that, you know, we, we, we probably would have come up with a case by now, somewhere in the United States, that with the rebuttable presumption, 
where a person didn't do anything to address their domestic violence and met a presumption by virtue of some, how someone else treated us. Because that goes to how the parents treat each other. But it doesn't go to protecting this child. She didn't come in with any witnesses, right? How do we know that the child is safe? We don't know. Actually, we had some evidence, right? Didn't, wasn't she committed after an argument with another boyfriend? While Counsel, dating doesn't, Mr. doesn't the child's representative, the guardian ad litem, shed some light on that and whether the child is at risk or not? Unfortunately, not, um, because the court or the guardian ad litem sort of shirked the responsibility on the determining the facts of the domestic violence and then making that statutory analysis. So I, I do appreciate, um, Your Honor, I think domestic abuse is a very uh, complicated issue and something I'm no expert on, certainly. Um, but when we look at the language of the statute, we look at the other states, the way they've dealt with this presumption. It is very, it's very simplistic and very harsh. We see a couple paragraphs in a lot of these cases. You didn't meet the presumption, reversed. And so that's what this, this court should do. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Uh, thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.